Dennis and Elsie Kinlaw served Jesus side by side for over 50 years. They lovingly opened their home to countless students, missionaries, and hungry-hearted seekers. Their love for Jesus and for each other drew scores of people into the family of God. We hope you sense the hospitality of God as you listen. Our scripture today, there are four scriptures I would like to read, and I would appreciate it if you would look at them, because they really are what I think we need to hear today and what I would like to say. I wish I could say it as well. The first of these scriptures is from Exodus chapter 23. God has brought Israel out of Egypt and brought them to Sinai and has entered into a covenant with them. They are his people, and God is speaking to them. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 23 of Exodus, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land. The second passage that I would like to read is from chapter 33. It comes after one of those unfortunate experiences in the life of the people of God. And God and Moses are trying to get things straightened out. And in chapter 33, verse 12, Moses is talking to God. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, Lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, Teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, Now I know that your translation says basically my presence will go with you. But what the Hebrew literally says is, My face will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your face does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? The third passage is in the prophecy of Ezekiel. And it comes at the end of that uh, great chapter on the resurrection, the chapter of the dry bones that are where God puts the flesh black on them and resurrects them. And the closing two verses of that chapter, My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them. 
The last passage is from Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, as he comes to the close of that prayer where he and his Father, he is concluding his business for his life here before the cross, before his death for us and for our redemption. Reading from verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, the church is a witness to the world of what God is all about. I think that's the reason that in much of human history, Christian history, when people would build a church, they'd try to build a great steeple on it. And that steeple was so that all of the countryside around could see the steeple, and it was a symbol of the presence of God and what God had to say to them. Now, what is it that God has to say through the church to the world? One of the things that I think is very clear is that the church has to say to the world that God is a very social being, that He likes company. And he looks for fellowship. And he looks for it in humans, just like you and me. There is something in his heart that he desires to know us and wants to be intimate and close to us. And the reason is, not for what we can do for him, but the astounding thing is he's the reverse of all that we naturally know about love because he loves us not for what we can do for him. He loves us for what he can do for us. And he wants to give himself his greatest gift to us. Because, you see, he is, as the Scripture says, holy love. But now there's a problem. While he wants proximity, intimacy with me and with you, most of us are a little bit afraid of him. And we'd like a safe distance between us and him. And that's the story which the Scripture gives to us of the human race. And we see it in the third chapter of Genesis. It's fascinating to me that all of the problems of human history are found located in their origin in a single chapter of Scripture. The first two chapters, you get the creation of the world, the creation of man, and everything is order, and then you get the third chapter. And there is that couple, the original couple. And the serpent comes and puts a question in the mind of Eve. And it's interesting how that question becomes a doubt. Has God said? And there's that doubt. Could it be that God is holding something good back from me? And then that doubt becomes distrust. And distrust becomes distance and separation. 
Did you ever notice how if you walk in a room and there are a lot of people there, but there's a person there whom you particularly distrust, what your reaction is? You immediately arrange your defenses, and if it's possible, you stay as far away from that person as you can stay. You know, that's the reason the Scripture talks so much about faith. You can never get close to anybody that you do not trust. You're too busy defending yourself. And God says, you don't need to be afraid of me. And you don't need to build defenses against me. And you don't need to distance yourself because I don't want to hurt you. I want to do you good and give you the supreme gift. And that is myself. Now, uh, it's interesting how the Bible pictures God in this. There are many, but let me just mention two. The prime one is not a picture of something he does, but it's of who he is. He's a father. And a father wants a relationship with his children. Nothing will grieve a father's heart more than alienation from his own. And so the heart of God grieves when we distance ourselves because he's a father. But you'll remember his son is a shepherd. And he's that shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. And if you're lost today, he's going after you. There's not a soul in the world that's lost today that he is not seeking. Because that's the kind of God he is. He is a seeking God. And that's what the Bible gives us, the story of the search of God for man, for us. And it begins, you remember, he found a few individuals. He found an Enoch, and he walked with him, and he took him home without dying. There was Noah, and he walked with God. And then there was Abraham. And then you will remember Abraham became a family. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob, you will remember, had 12 sons, and now he had a family of families. And that family ends up in Egypt. And so God says to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But there's an interesting expression in that passage where God speaks to Moses about Israel and what he's to say to Pharaoh. What he actually says is, Tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn son go. I missed that for a long time. The Hebrew word is before. And it means your firstborn son. And God is saying, Israel, this family of families, is my firstborn son. Now, why does he call Israel the firstborn son? Because that day when he sent Moses to Pharaoh, he was thinking about me. Because, you see, I'm not a Hebrew. So I'm not one of the firstborn sons, but I come with the other born ones. Because God, from the beginning had every person in existence, in his world, in mind, and he longed for a personal saving relationship with him. And so he said to Israel, when he got them out of Egypt, he gave them the law, entered into a covenant with them like a marriage covenant. I'll be yours, you're to be mine. And then he said, I want to live with you, so build me a house. And so 15 of the most boring chapters in the Bible come next. And that's the construction of the tabernacle. But don't take them out of your Bible. They're powerful chapters because what do they say? 
They say that God wants not only to live with us, but God wants to live with the center of us. Because God said to Moses, put three tribes over here and three tribes over here and three tribes there and three tribes there and put my house so I can dwell right in the middle of you, the center. Now that's what troubles us about God. He wants to get to the center of things. But you don't have to fear Him. He doesn't want to get there to hurt you. And you know He doesn't want to get there just so He'll get adulation out of you. And He doesn't want to get there just so He can keep you under His thumb and control you. You know why He wants to be the center? Because that's what He is. <laughs> the early church in the first three, three or four centuries, the church fathers used the term for God. Pege, Greek term, and what it was was a, a well or a fountain out of which the water would come. And they said, He is the source. God is the fountain from which all things come. And all of your life comes from Him. And He not only is the fountain, as Hebrews says, He is the sustainer. He upholds all things with the word of His power. You know, we really don't believe that. But you know, one day I was reading the crucifixion story and I thought about that poor Roman soldier who had to drive the spikes into his hand. And so he drove that first spike into Jesus' hand as he lay there on the cross. And then he turned to pick up the second spike and the mallet to drive it through his second hand. And here is Jesus being crucified. And it dawned on me, Jesus was thinking, Shall I give him another breath? And shall I let the energy flow through that arm so he can, his body racked with excruciating, unbelievable pain? And he gives the Roman soldier the next breath. And he gives his arm the energy to drive the spike through. You see, that's who God is. He's the one from whom all things come. He's the source. He's the fount. You know, the blasphemer, the very breath with which he breathes, is a gift from the one that he is blaspheming. And so he says, I'd just like to be who I am. I want to be the center of your existence. In other words, he said, I want to be with you. We need to pay attention always to the prepositions in Scripture. And that word with, he wants to be with us. See, that's part of his name, Emmanuel. God with us. With us, God, as the Hebrews said. But God wants to be with you, and God wants to be with me. And he's seeking to close the distance between himself and me. And he is seeking to close the distance between himself and all human beings because he loves us and wants us to be children in his family so he can give to us his blessing and his favor. Now that presence in that tabernacle defined Israel. They had a land they had a city in the center of that land. They had a temple in the center of that city. 
And in the center of that temple, they had a room, the Holy of Holies. And in that, there was an altar and a cherubim at each end. And between the cherubim was the Holy Presence, God himself, living with his people and there to bless and to help them. Now, they were the people, the people of the presence. But, you know, he wanted to be closer even than that. That's the Old Testament story. But when you come to the New Testament, something radically different takes place. God says, I not only want to be with them, I look for terminology to say this, but what he wanted to do was identify himself with us and literally become one with us. And so a virgin conceived, and an infant was born. And God, the omnipotent one who has all power, came into this existence as a babe, an infant, just like you did. And God became one of us. There's nothing like this anywhere else in all the religions of the world. This was very hard on the Greek philosophers. And when Paul and John and the other early Christians went around the Mediterranean basin, the educated, literate people, this was unbelievable to them because, you see, they believed in a dualism in which the spirit, the reason, the rational part of man, that was the good and what was like God, and then the fleshly part, that's what you wanted to get rid of, because that's where all the problems came. Have you ever read the death story of Socrates? Supposedly the wisest man that Greece ever produced. And you will remember what he wanted was to die so he could get out of the body and be free. He wanted to escape flesh. And here's the God of gods who wants to assume flesh. You see, whatever the other religions of the world say, you can count on Christianity going the exact opposite. God becoming one of us. I'll never forget the shock that came to me when I heard somebody say, if you could see the inner life of the triune Godhead, right there where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, you'd find a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. <laughs> because in the incarnation, God wedded himself to the creation. God wedded himself to us and became one of us. Now, why did he do that? I think he did it so that uh, we could know something the Old Testament couldn't give us. You see, the Old Testament told us what he had to say and showed us what he could do. But God said, I'd like for them to know who I am. It's wonderful that they hear what I have to say. And it's great that they've experienced what I can do. But I want them to know who I am. So I want them to see me, the face of God. John said, No man has seen God at any time. 
But the only begotten Son, who is in from the bosom of the Father, He has exegeted Him, declared Him, made Him manifest. And so, uh, in Christ, we have a chance to see what there is to be seen of God. You know, uh, there is a, a prominent Scottish theologian who now is in retirement, but he was the child of Scottish Presbyterian missionaries in China, so he grew up in Shanghai. He later graduated from the University of Edinburgh, was ordained in the, in the Church of Scotland, did a Ph.D. under Karl Barth at Basel, and then he found himself a chaplain in the Second World War. And one day, he said they were in the middle of a terrific battle, and he had a kid on his hands who was dying. He was a 19-year-old British boy. And he said, I knew he had only a few minutes to live. And he said, more, the boy knew he had only a few minutes to live. And the boy was in total panic as he faced death. And the kid looked up in desperation and said, Padre, is God like Jesus? And Tom Torrance said, I found myself saying to the kid, Son, you don't have to worry about any God lurking behind the back of Jesus. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen all there is to see of God. And God wanted us to see Him, to know Him. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. But you know, there's an obverse of that that I missed for a long time. He wanted to know us. And sitting on a throne in heaven, He couldn't know what you experienced on Mondays and Saturdays and work days and tragic days. And so the son said, how can I ever judge these people if I've never been where they've been? And you remember, he'll be the judge. So he said, now I must become one of them. Now I know he came to die on the cross. No question about that. For you and for me and for our sins. And to give his life to us. But he also came so he could look us in the face and say, I've been there, and I've known what you've experienced. It's interesting that Tom Torrance has another brother who's a systematic theologian who was lecturing at Fuller Theological Seminary. And they had him in an apartment that was uh, 200 yards from the Pacific shore. And so every evening he'd go down and take a swim and so one night as he went down to swim, he bumped into an elderly gentleman who was going along, and they spoke. When James came back from his swimming, the elderly gentleman was coming back. And the gentleman said to him, Sir, who are you? And so James Torrance said, Well, 
I am a Presbyterian clergyman, minister of the Church of Scotland. And I'm in this country on a lecture tour. And I'm lecturing here in Pasadena. The guy said, that's astounding. You know, my father was a Presbyterian clergyman. And I left the church. And I lost my faith. And now, my wife of 45 years is dying with cancer, and I have nothing to say to her, and I don't know how to pray. And when I pray, who would ever pay any attention to my prayer? Jim Tarn said, I looked at him and said, Did you know that at the right hand of the Father in heaven right now, there's a man named Jesus (laughs) who's experienced everything you're experiencing except sin. And he's telling the Father all about you and about your wife. And you should trust him. He said, we prayed together. He said, the next night when I came out to go swimming, there he stood. (laughs) said, he looked at me and said, tell me more. Please, tell me more. I've been telling my wife all day what you told me last night. So he said, we talked and prayed together. said, the next night when I came out, there he was. And he said, would you ever go to visit my wife? He said, why? Of course. So he said, I found myself in a hospital room with a very fragile lady dying with cancer. And he said, she looked up at me and said, tell me more of what my husband has told me. And I told her about Jesus, that God had become a person like us. He knows our sorrow. He knows our pain. He's been where we've been. And now he is at the right hand of the Father. And he told her how Jesus was talking to her. And he said, you know, he's taking your husband's prayers and your prayers, and he's translating them to the Father in heavenly language. That a few weeks after that, He got a letter from the gentleman saying, How can I ever thank you? My wife died victorious in Christ, quote, safe in the arms of Jesus. How far will God go to close the distance between you and me and get us to the place where we will not fear Him or run from Him, but we will let Him draw near to us and become that part of our lives that he wants to become. But the interesting thing is, it's better than that. (laughs) He uh, not only wants to be with us, wants to identify himself with us to where he is one of us, but there's a closer relationship. I'd hate to tell you how old I was before I saw this in Scripture. Do you remember... When Paul was on the Damascus Road, 
And he met Jesus, and Jesus said to him, Why do you persecute me? And Saul said, I'm not persecuting you, I'm just killing Christians. And Jesus said, When you touch one of them, you've touched me. And then I read passages I just jumped over for years. When Jesus sent out the twelve, he said, Boys, it's not going to be easy, but I'm going with you. And if they receive you, they'll get me when they receive you. And if they get me, they get my Father. But if they reject you, they miss me, and when they miss me, they miss my Father. You know, that scared me. Me stand in his place? Me say to you, if you miss me, you've missed God? That's what he said to the twelve. So I said, thank God I wasn't one of the twelve. Don't have that monkey on my back. Then I read where he sent out the seventy. And do you know he said the same thing to the seventy? He said, if they hear you, they'll hear me. And if they hear me, they'll hear my father. And if they don't listen to you, they're not listening to me and won't hear me, and they won't hear my Father. I said, well, thank you, Lord, I wasn't one of the seventy. I don't have that load on me. And then I read the 13th chapter of John. And do you know what he does in the 13th chapter of John? He universalizes and says it's supposed to be true of every believer. Because you'll notice a theme that runs through all those passages that I read. If you let me be the center of your life and fill you, then the world will know about me. The world can only learn about Christ through us. So what is it that he wants? You know, there sort of a classical definition of the church that says something about it being a place where believers gather to worship and where the Word is preached and where the sacraments are celebrated. And what are they? Baptism, certainly. What about the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, the good gift? This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which was shed for you. Take, eat, feed on me within your hearts by faith. What is it that he wants to give to me? His very life. And how intimately does he want that life to be mine? As intimate as the food which I eat becomes a part of my physical being. He wants to permeate me and wants me to live in Him and permeate Him in the same way. That inner penetration of personhood. So He wants to be within me and me within Him to the extent that when we walk out in the world, He's there. You know, I'm glad they did stick steeples on churches. Now, we don't do that today. But you know what? I'd like to think that people would think 
when they think of the church. It's a place where there's a divine presence. And what is that presence? It's God who's seeking to close the distance between himself and those that are so far from him. What a privilege. (laughs) What a privilege is ours. All grace, no human works anywhere in it. It's the permeating presence of Christ. But you have to be open to Him. And you have to say to Him, Lord, close the distance. Close the distance and enter into me. Enter into me like the wafer in the cup enters my body. Until we are an answer to that prayer the last hours before His arrest. When He said, Father, make them one like we are one. Just as I'm in you and you're in me, let them be in us and us in them in such a way that the world will know that you sent me. Is any distance inside you today that needs to be closed? It can be closed today because you see he's looking for it. He's pulling every string he can pull to close that gap. So that when you walk out those doors, what he prayed for you is being fulfilled. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for a sanctuary, a holy place. We know there is no holiness apart from your presence, not the building that makes anything holy, and we're not the ones that make it holy. You, by your presence, the glory of your presence, are what makes it a sanctuary. But Lord, you want to fill not just a building, you want to fill us. Not to hurt us, but so you can give yourself to us. You can save us, redeem us. What a glorious thing. Let that person now, who senses distance, maybe his back's been turned to you or her back, let him turn around and face you and move towards you and say, but more than that, let you move toward them to fill them with yourself. And we will give you praise in Christ's name.